Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have published 35 cookbooks, and Bruce has got knitting books, and Bruce had a cocktail book, and I've got a memoir. I mean, we... I don't know what we are. We're, we're busy. Yeah, we're something at eight different New York publishers. Kind of amazing. Our latest book is the Instant Air Fryer Bible. It is out right now for the holidays. It is specifically written for instant brand air fryers like Vortex and Omnis. But you can use it with any air fryer you want. It's a step-by-step guide to air frying basic and simple and interesting foods. It's a great start. Give it with an air fryer this holiday. Mm -hmm. But we're not talking about any of that in this episode of the podcast. We're going to talk about a food that you may know and not know that it's terribly controversial. It's so (laughs) common. We're going to give a one-minute cooking tip. Bruce has an interview with Linda Lee, author of National Parks Cookbook. I uh, Anybody who knows me knows I love going to national parks. And finally, we're going to talk about what makes us happy in food this week. So we're going to start off talking about bread, but not just any bread. We're talking about the baguette. This is the this is the controversial food, well, right? It's more than bread. Baguette is an identity. It is. If anybody wants? Well, look, it's firm, it's long, it's crunchy. Oh. You know, it, it's just like you oh. want to have a good. Baguette. Sounds like a guy I dated. Yeah. Mm. Um. Anyway, yes, it, it it is all those things, and in fact, UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, has actually certified the status of the baguette, hasn't it? Yes, the status as being vital to French culture. Wow. It has been certified, and what UNESCO wow. what UNESCO says is that this is an intangible cultural heritage, as traditions or living expressions inherited from ancestors and passed on to descendants. Well, so true. baguettes are so intrinsic to French life and French identity. I think a lot of people, it's it's one of the great revelations of going to Paris or going to France for the first time is that you go into boulangerie. I know this happened to me in 1978, the first time I went. Before the crust of the earth hardened. Well, all right. Yes, we did walk rather funny before the crust hardened. But anyway, in 78, when I went to Paris for the first time, I had a baguette and I it was it was a complete revelation. Back then in 78 in the United States, uh, bread was wonder or... Oh, Roman th- meal if you Roman. were lucky. <laughs> if you were lucky, you up, got Roman meal. That was up-end. We didn't have up-end in my house. We had Mrs. Baird's because we <laughs> lived in Texas. But well, it was just basically wonder yeah, well, bread. Baguettes are to Parisians like bagels are to New Yorkers. You know, bagels in New York are fabulous, and bagels everywhere else suck. Oh, okay. Oh my God. Uh, we really love Montreal. Please don't turn away from us, Canadian listeners. I love Canada. I don't like Montreal bagels. I'm sorry. <laughs> They're donuts. They're just donuts with a hole in them. And the French Tim Hortons. Say, See, that's it. That's their bagel shop. And <laughs> the French feel the same way about baguettes. They make baguettes. Their baguettes have been. Honored by UNESCO. Uh, okay. Whose other baguettes have been honored okay. by UNESCO? And let me just say, Mr. New Yorker, that there are New York bagels that suck because I'm sorry, and I'm going to offend New Yorkers out there, but Essa bagel is disgusting. Those are not donuts. They're just pieces of cake. They're Wonder Bread <laughs> smashed into bagel form. You don't know. I don't know. You like Essa Bagel? Not as much as I like other bagels. You can't admit it. They're terrible. They're just (laughs) awful bagels. Gross. But when you go into a boulangerie in Paris, you have options. Here's a fun thing about baguettes in Paris. No matter what boulangerie you go into, they will have baked the baguettes to different 
levels. And you can I, I, ask what? what level you want your baguette cooked no, to. No, I've never done such a thing. You can. You can go in. I've seen people order them pas trop cuit, not too cooked. But what's the what? point of that? It's not as crunchy. Always go in and say you want a baguette bien cuit, s'il vous plaît, well cooked. You can get a nice brown, crunchy one. You can get a less cooked one. Uh, okay, I didn't know this. I did. I thought baguettes were baguettes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that Damn. you could go to Paris and get various cooked. You know what? I think that they might look at me strange. Uh, but okay, I'll, I'll buy it, what you're saying. I've just never actually seen that in action. And I have to say that most people may not know that there are now two recognized kinds of baguettes. Believe it or not, this food culture in France is highly, highly regulated. Well, maybe you do believe it. It's highly regulated. And there are two different kinds there. There's tradition, tradition, and there's classique or classical. Or ordinaire. Sometimes that's just called an baguette ordinaire. Right, right, right. And this was a law passed in 93, right? And it kind of established a way to have, what do we want to say, a high-end baguette and a low-end baguette? Well, I think what it did in 93 is when they started to cement the idea of what a real good baguette is. The traditional baguette, it may only contain flour, water, yeast, and salt. And it is around a third more expensive than an ordinaire, than a plain classic baguette. And it is considered an artisanal baguette because they're not going to certify garbage. So they certify the artisanal baguette. Also, must be made fresh on site. You're not going to find that it's baked elsewhere and brought into the boulangerie. It's baked right there. And generally, a baguette de tradition is darker in color, a bit thicker than a regular baguette. So, really, when I say baguettes are revelations to foreigners traveling to Paris for the first time, I'm talking about the tradition, the yes, tradition. You are. Because yeah. I don't even know this classic thing. That sounds like what I get at my local stop and shop. Well, it is. And unfortunately, in France, more and more supermarkets have popped up, more and more, you know, mass-produced food has popped up. So Costco. people are starting, yes, Costco. And you could go into Costco in France and you could get baguettes, but they're not going to be the certified baguettes. They're oh, not going to be the tradition baguettes. They're going to be ordinaire. They're going to be garbage baguettes. Okay, so this is the problem, that there were cut-rate baguettes that came in, and so there had to be a way to distinguish what you were getting. I see. Now Only I get why. the French could do that. They could see crappy baguettes hitting the market and deciding that, oh, no, we must protect the tradition baguette. And I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the ways you can identify yourself as a U.S. citizen, as somebody not from France, is if you buy a baguette from a boulangerie and you carry it under your arm. <laughs> the, oh. This is the way the French make fun of U.S. citizens is the carrying of the baguette in the armpit. Well, even better, carry it under your arm and then get on a bicycle. Oh. And then you could be the total cliche of what we think they are. But that, but no French person carries it in their armpit. That's but here's, what's so... But here's the way you do a baguette. You go into the boulangerie. You order a baguette the only way you should, which is bien cuit, well done, s'il vous plaît. Crunchy, crunchy brown. You step outside. You tear off the end and eat it immediately. <laughs> then you turn the baguette <laughs> no, around so the no, cut side no, no, is no, inside no. the bag staying fresh. You shove it under your arm. No. You get on your oh, little bicycle. No. You hear French music in your head. No. And you ride around no. Paris. First of all, if you've ever been to France, you know the last thing you do is eat on the street. You do <laughs> not eat on the street. It's just considered un- Unbelievably uncouth. And I have to say, I concur. Though the most joyless meal 
possible is the one that you eat walking down a street. I'm what sorry. about all those crepe stands? Are they making Nutella crepes? Who right are they there? making them for? How many French people have you ever seen standing in those lines? Who were they making them for? The Germans. Yeah, no, not the Germans. No, there's another ethnic. The Australians. No, there's another nationality there, and it's not Australians. Chileans, no, the Swiss. No, still far away. <laughs> Um, no, it's in fact, don't uh, eat on the street. You know, we use, uh, this is so off the subject, but I really believe that the most joyless meal possible is to go buy sushi at Whole Foods <laughs> and eat it in your car. That is the most joyless because the sushi, it looks like it should taste good, but it never tastes like anything. The rice is crappy and uh, and then you sit there in your car eating your $35 box of sushi. It's so joyless. Okay, but eating a French baguette on the street is not joyless. It may be classless, it's but classless. it's not joyless. When we first went to Paris in 96, I had never been there before. I went into boulangerie. I bought a baguette. I classless. devoured the whole thing classless. on the street in classless. the first 50. I went into a baguette classless. every time I finished might, the last you bite. You might as well be a savage. I well, mean, I'm I, sure they considered me one. I, honestly, you do, don't eat on the street. My euros bought a baguette just Sit like everyone down. else's euros. Okay, it, I got news for you. In 96, your euros bought nothing. Your francs <laughs> bought a baguette. I got lots of news for you on so many levels. But th- I do think that this is a thing. And I do think it's a thing about eating. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be such an old school marm, even though I am one. I don't mean to be such an old school marm, but I do think that to eat, you should sit down. Okay, if I go in to buy a baguette because I'm hungry, where am I going to sit on the, on the curb and eat my baguette? Don't eat it on the street. And for God's sake, don't eat it in a museum. <laughs> uh, that just kills me when yeah, I'm the in the Louvre and somebody, on the Mona Lisa. Uh, somebody pulls out a baguette. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you doing? And the guards, of course, rush. And I mean, uh, they rush and they go, give me some of that baguette. No, they do I'm not. Hungry. No, they do not ask for any of the baguette. <laughs> it's so gross. I, I I, I'm sorry. I'm just on a tear. I'm on a tear about eating in public like that, and I don't like it. And it's just your grandmother coming through. Your no. grandmother did not let you eat on the street. My grandmother would never have eaten on the street. First of all, uh, what street on a farm does one eat on? Oh, this is, here's another one. I got another one for you. Is going in New York City and sitting in movie theaters and having people eat white fish salad on garlic bagels a seat away from me. I'm sorry. Put that away. Seriously, put that away. I'm watching a movie. I love white fish salad. Not on garlic bagels. I love white fish salad on bagels. But come on. Not in a movie theater. I don't know. I have very fond memories of eating on the street as a child when I was a kid. We'd go into Manhattan and look at the Christmas windows and sacks, and we'd get chestnuts and pretzels on the street, Savages. and we would Savages. eat them on the street and Savages. look at the Christmas lights. Mm-mm. Savages. I just can't imagine it. We once went to a bro- We're so off topic. We're eating chestnuts at Christmas Ugh. in front of Saks Fifth Ugh. Avenue. Those rotty chestnuts <laughs> they sell on the streets of New York are disgusting. They're as disgusting. 
They probably sell them at Essa Bagel. So they're disgusting. I, uh, now I'm on a tear because I'll tell you another <laughs> thing about. See, I can be as persnickety about food as the French. Is I'm sorry, I do not want to pay four hundred dollars for a Broadway seat and go sit in the theater and have you pull out fast food from McDonald's in the row in front of me. I just from McDonald's. They sell hot dogs in the back uh, of Broadway disgusting. musical theaters now. People bring hot dogs to their seats because they sell it, them in the theater. Is it only in musical theaters? In other words, if I see a play, they don't sell hot dogs, well, but it's just musicals? I, don't know. I think it's mostly in musicals. Uh, I think they probably sell them everywhere, but it's disgusting. I don't want to watch you squirt mustard on your hot dog. <laughs> I don't want to watch you squirt anything. Uh, gross. I... <laughs> Uh, see, I, I can be like the French. I just, I, I'm not doing it. So anyway, that's our whole talk about ba- uh, baguettes. Let's not, <laughs> let's not belabor this thing anymore. We've really beat this horse till it is beyond dead. So let's move on to our one minute cooking tip. Wear shoes in the kitchen. Oh, okay, definitely. don't cook barefoot for a number oh. of reasons. One. Danger. If you drop things on your bare feet, you're more likely to break a toe yep. than if you have shoes on. And also, it's not good for your feet to be standing on your feet and working for hours on end without shoes. And if you feel no. like, do what I do. I have slippers, but I have orthotics that I shove into the slippers so I have nice support. Wow. And How old are I you? I wear orthotics. Slippers with orthotics. Grandpa Simpson. <laughs> no, Grandpa you, Simpson would take those orthotic slippers and go out with them. Your slippers have orthotics <laughs> in them. Do you need me to pre-chew your food for you as well? Yes, I'm a baby bird. Okay, that's great. Okay, so yes, wear shoes in the kitchen. You'll be safer and your feet will thank you. Your, your shins will thank you and your calves will thank you too. Up next, Bruce's interview with author Linda Lee. She has got a new book out, The National Parks Cookbook. I love the national parks. Anybody who knows me knows that the U.S. national parks are near and dear to my heart. We went to one every summer on family vacation. They are just close to my heart. So up next, that interview with Linda Lee. This morning, I'm talking with Linda Lee. She is the author of this fabulous new cookbook, The National Parks Cookbook, The Best Recipes From and Inspired by America's National Parks. Hey, Linda. Hi there. Tell me, how did you get the idea to write the National Parks Cookbook? So I have been working with the same editor over at Cordo Publishing since 2013. Um, And he is always constantly looking up ideas, um, gathering inspiration from, you know, various sources. Uh, And he knew that I love the outdoors. Uh, The previous book that I wrote before the national parks was the new camp cookbook and the backyard fire cookbook. So outdoor cooking, especially outdoor cooking with whole foods has always been my specialty in a way. So he actually saw this idea in an article um, somewhere, I can't remember, but it was all about uh, different types of food that you can find in National Park Lodges. It was a very short article. They featured maybe a handful of recipes, but he thought it was interesting and he floated the idea to me one day. And I was intrigued, honestly, uh, because I love the national parks. I've been visiting for years. um, And the idea of trying to collect all of these favorite recipes from all over the country was very appealing to me, mostly because I also love to travel. And that kind of gave me an excuse to visit 
more parks and revisit some of my favorite parks. So the idea was born from that. And you got to travel with your husband, who's a photographer. He did the gorgeous photos in your book. Isn't that right? Yes, it is. <laughs> or the recipes in the book, your interpretation of what the National Parks Lodges serve, or are they actually the recipes? And if they are, how did you manage to get the Park Service to share them with you? So the recipes are a mix of both. They are um, recipes from the lodges and the park service themselves, as well as my interpretation of what's served, as well as original recipes that are inspired by the flora and fauna of the regions. The research for this book was uh, pretty intense because I did have to find the appropriate contact at each national park that had a lodge that served food. And this is kind of a boring reason, but working in publishing, you know, you have a set deadline of when you can work on these books. Mine happened to be summer through fall, which is the busiest time for the parks. But unfortunately, once you move into winter, nobody is there. <laughs> so you're, you kind of don't win either way, but it was basically just trying to get a hold of marketing or public relations or the executive chefs themselves or their assistants, or just anyone in the kitchen and the dining rooms to try to explain to them what the book was about and get them excited to share a recipe with the readers. I can imagine they were very excited uh, when you told them what was going on. Yeah, just there hasn't really been a recent book like this um, that's out. And, you know, there are so many recipes. Once I started doing more of the research, you know, I'm most familiar with uh, the National Parks of the West because I lived in California for a very long time. And now I'm in Oregon. You know, I knew about um, boysenberry pie at Yosemite because I've ordered it before. and I knew it was there for decades. Um, but just talking to more of the chefs and the public relations, you know, it's fascinating how long lived a lot of these recipes are that we still eat today. So let's talk about a recipe. The first one I want to talk about is the hiker's stew. Now, this is the stew served at the Phantom Ranch down at the bottom of Grand Canyon. Tell me about the stew. What makes it such a favorite? Well, the hiker stew has been around since the early 1970s, but the Phantom Ranch has actually been there since the 20s. So if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you're hiking to the bottom of the canyon, you know that's a pretty strenuous trek. Um, and Phantom Ranch is the only restaurant down there. So it kind of feels like a godsend once you're done with your hike. You know, you've been living off of bars and dehydrated food for your whole trek. I mean, all of a sudden there's like a restaurant that serves a hot meal sit down style. So I think that's what makes it so popular is that you can finally get like this cold drink with this nourishing hot meal, like a good warming hearty stew um, to either finish your day or, you know, just like a stopover point so you can move on. And I think that's what people love about it. Now, I've had the Navajo tacos in Zion National Park, and I was thrilled to see you had a version of them in your book. Tell me about these open-faced tacos. Well, these open-faced tacos are really fun because it's such a mishmash of the cultures that we know. Um, they were actually invented by the um, manager at the Navajo Lodge. And it's a very random story because... As the story goes, one night he was at the lodge. This is in Window Rock, Arizona. So the lodge no longer exists, but a um, person came in and they were hungry and they're like, can you just put together anything for me? And um, Lou Shepard was the manager and he was like, sure, let me see what's in the back of the kitchen. And so he found some fry bread, which is um, a staple there. And he found some like chili peppers. He found um, like a salad and he kind of just threw it all together and made this concoction 
it was a hit because the guests absolutely loved it. And after that, more people started coming into the lodge asking for Lou's special, you know, and it, they became Navajo tacos because at some point somebody just called them like, Hey, can you make me one of those Navajo tacos? So the concept just spread throughout the Navajo nation and even outside of the Navajo nation, you know, so sometimes they're called Navajo tacos, Sioux tacos is what they call them up in the Badlands, or they're just known simply as Indian tacos. I'm so glad you have that recipe in the book. <laughs> yeah, they're delicious. It's like really hits the spot, you know, perfect amount of like grease and fat. And <laughs> at the old faithful lodge at Yellowstone, people have been ordering the moose drool braised bison short ribs for more than a decade. Are they made with moose? <laughs> no, and it's not even made with moose drool. Uh, <laughs> moose drool is their local brew, it's a nice brown ale um, or an amber ale. And the moustrel that they use in the recipe is for the um, nice sauce that they braise the, the, the bison short ribs in. And so the you get this nice like brown ale mixed in with some wine and some beef broth and it sits in the stove for hours and it's absolutely heaven. And what would you recommend to people who might not be able to get their hands on the actual moose drool beer, or even if someone lives in a place where they can't get bison? What's a good substitution for both of these things? Well, for the moose drool, you can use any dark beer. Um, and I think that's what makes it really interesting with this recipe is that it will taste a little bit different each time, depending on what beer you use. Um, kind of like chili, how you have like your special ingredient, you know, uh, so you can definitely try any kind of like porter or a brown ale, amber ale, even a red ale, um, whatever you have local to you that's available, like definitely give it a try. And if you don't have bison short ribs, you can use beef short ribs. So we think about national parks, as you said, you knew them out West. And most people think of Utah, Wyoming, California. I think most people forget about the New England parks like Acadia up in Maine. Mm -hmm. So what foods are we likely to find there that we won't find out West and what's your favorite recipe from Maine? Well, Maine is known for its seafood. You know, it's famous for lobster, lobster rolls, um, clams and clam bakes. Uh, and I think that's what people mostly associate like New England with is like all of that great um, seafood. So my personal favorites from Maine is the lobster stew. I'm a big soup person. And even though they call there's a stew, do, it's actually more like a lobster soup. You know, it's this really great creamy soup. The lobster is the star. There's nothing else in it aside from just like a little bit of like sprinkling of chives, um, some cream, some sherry. Uh, but it really brings out the flavor of the lobster, which is what you want. And you get such a good hefty serving in a bowl. So I personally like the lobster stew. Acadia is famous for their popovers. I believe they make tens of thousands of popovers a day at the Jordan Pond House. Um, and it's the perfect accompaniment for lobster stew. So both of those recipes are in my book. These are my interpretation of them, <laughs> but I think they're pretty darn close. Is there a trick to getting the popovers just perfectly puffed? Yes, there is. And you know, it's funny because I actually looked at their recipe um, because they also have their own cookbook. But I live in Bend, Oregon. We're kind of right at the cusp of high elevation. So we're at right around 3,500 to 4,000 feet, just enough to screw things up when you're baking because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I was very pleased when I <laughs> discovered a way to make my popovers pop every single time. Um, and the key is using a high gluten flour, a bread flour. Mm, that's <laughs> 
Good to know. Now, as far away from Maine as we can get in the U.S. and still be in the national parks, we find our way to Alaska. Looking through your book, I see they have their own flavor on the menu. So what are we likely to find from the Alaska national parks in your book? Alaska, and you know, it's so far away that what they consider local is anything they can get within like 300 miles, right? <laughs> um, so all of the food from Alaska, you know, like they really take advantage of the flora and fauna, you know, what they have um, locally available. So you're going to find a lot of very local, very regional specialties there, um, like salmon berries, lingonberries. Um, as far as the meats are concerned, there's... Uh, elk, there's uh, moose, and there's reindeer. So it's just what they have available. But these are easily substitutable if you're not in Alaska, you know, with different kinds of berries and other kinds of meats. Um, one place that I spoke with, it was the, um, the Camp Denali. And they, you know, they were the ones who told me like, oh, anything local is within 300 miles that we can get, you know, but they live at the end of like this hundred mile road. So whatever they buy from their supplier, like they really are going to make that work, you know, like make the whole thing last. Um, and so their recipe is, are these beef uh, kaftas. It's like a beef skewer. And they said that it was just basically because they had a lot of leftover meat and they're trying to find like a good creative way to use it all. And so they made basically like a meatball on a skewer, you know, and it was just like a really good way to take advantage of every cut of meat that they had. I learned something amazing in your book. And that is, and I didn't know in Acadia that you could pick fruit. You could pick 10 gallons of apples a day and Yosemite, you could pick unlimited quantity of berries. <laughs> and this blew my mind. So what other harvesting tips can you offer if we're visiting the national parks? My biggest tip is that, you know, like for me, I, I don't go foraging per se um, through the national parks, but I do love to like have myself a little on the go snack. And so I forage like while I'm on the hikes um, or if I'm like camping somewhere. Because um, my tip is that, you as the human are not the only person who likes all these luscious berries and fruits and nuts and things like that. You know, these, these um, parks also have quite a bit of wildlife that depend on that food. And, you know, it's easy to just kind of um, get swept up in like the excitement of foraging. And then you're like running like right into a bear. <laughs> so my main tip is just to be careful. Make sure you're always making some kind of sound like chatting, um, maybe wearing like your bear bell or something, making enough noise. You're not startling an animal that's also foraging for food. Um, also, a lot of people don't know this, but um, every national park has a superintendent's compendium that is posted online. Usually it's updated every year. And that is where all of these foraging guidelines came from. Um, and so, you know, for the most part, they stay the same, but sometimes they will change the quantities that you can forage based on like the supply in the park, because obviously their first thing is to protect the animals and make sure the wildlife has enough. And so if you aren't sure and you haven't um, run across a ranger, then check the compendium and then make sure like, oh, can I still harvest um, 10 gallons of apples or, you know, unlimited berries here just to be sure. And you know, in places where you have unlimited foraging, um, which is a surprising number of parks, you know, I just think it's good juju to leave a little bit for the next person. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. Linda Lee, your new book, The National Parks Cookbook, is absolutely beautiful. The recipes look delicious. I learned a lot. 
uh, talking to you and just going through the book about the food. Great good luck with the book. And thank you for sharing a few minutes with me. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. And thanks for having me, Bruce. Such an interesting idea for a cookbook, National Parks Cookbook. I know, and I think about the food at National Parks as not being great, but she reminds me of all the good stuff that's there. Okay, so our final and traditional last segment, what's making us happy in food this weekend? I'm going to go first. I'm going to tell you that last night I made a gigantic Iranian dinner for eight people, and I have to say that in the end I was rather proud of myself. I made a crazy riff off traditional Iranian soups and desserts, and I, I I turned it all kind of and morphed it into my own creations. It was amazing. Mark did but, a great job. In oh my gosh! I stuffed pears with this lamb and ginger and cardamom mixture and then braise them. I mean, And not just any lamb. We got some nice local organic lamb from Howling Flats Farm. Shout out to Kelly at Howling Flats. I ground it up for Mark. Oh, it was so good. It was was crazy. I just had so much fun making a dinner of something that I would never have thought of. And let me tell you how it started. So let me just go on for this for a minute. Months ago, I saw a guy on TikTok eating Iranian food in his car. Apparently, this guy drives around and eats food in L.A. in his car from various restaurants and reads it. And he was just absolutely orgasmic over this Iranian soup that he was eating, this very traditional soup made with a thousand herbs and greens. And so I thought, I want to make that. So see, TikTok does provide some <laughs> kind of inspiration. Now, what I did is is morph that soup into something no Iranian you would recognize. You morphed it into a pasta dish, I know, which was I amazing. Was crazy. It I was really good. turned the soup into a sauce, and I served it over a pasta in this, this fermented way. And it, it was all crazy stuff. But I it made me very happy to be able to do it. What's making me happy is a gift that friends who came to the dinner party last night gave us, which is quince paste. Uh, and this is so special because, first of all, I love quince paste. I love dried fruit. I love I loved fruit leather when I was a kid. I like dried apricots. So quince paste is just a lovely texture, and it's concentrated. It's sweet. It's tart. They make it from quince they grow yeah. in their property. Yeah. So if you don't know about quince paste, quince paste, it's really good. Look for it in higher-end markets. It's really good with cheese. You cut it into tiny little cubes. They brought us cheese to go with it. I know. They brought manchego to go with it. And the, you cut it into tiny little cubes and you eat it with the cheese and it's really delicious. I, I forgot we had the quince paste this morning and I had a piece of cheese for breakfast, but I forgot that there was quince space too. I should have had that too. It, it, uh, There's it's, always lunch. It's really an amazing little find to go along with cheese. Okay, so that's the podcast this week on Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We are certainly glad that you have joined us and we would certainly love it if you would subscribe and even rate the podcast. Thank you for the recent ratings of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It's really nice to see those. I, it really warms our heart. Thank you, Jargon Wise, for your recent comment about listening to this podcast every week. And please join us on Facebook. Our group there is called Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We have always great conversations. I post recipes. I post videos. You can find more of the videos on our YouTube channel and our TikTok channel, also called Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And we look forward to presenting another podcast episode for you next week on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.